I can do things that wet without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Island, world's biggest barrel of and fun. Anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. You get the whole show now, you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the wonderful world of theme park design. That is, you've just set sail on a journey of discovery and discussion with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and Salem with me as always is theme park designer, master planner, and chief creative officer for Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Where's the river winding us today, Mel? Well, sit back, relax, and get ready for greatness, my friend, because <laughs> our guest is none other than Walt Disney Imagineering uh, and Imagineering Story rock star, designer, and art producer, Doris Hardin. Uh, Doris joined the company uh, as part of the original Epcot team uh, back in 1979, uh, helping to develop the China Pavilion. By the way, she was uh, she's got an amazing personal story before she ever, ever even lands Imagineering, so I can't wait to share it with that with you but she lent her unique cultural perspective to international projects with tokyo disneyland and disneyland paris but her crowning glory is probably considered uh shanghai disneyland where she developed the legendary uh, design voice for the resort that is authentically disney and distinctly chinese she's definitely one of my design heroes uh, from a leadership uh, creative and a design perspective and also a mentor for so many of the young creatives that she led and this is truly a unique episode for the Themed Attraction Podcast. Our interview with Doris was recorded live at a special event for the staff at Storyland Studios. Alrighty, folks, keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat, because this episode is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. Hey, uh, Mel, if we were to check off all of our Imagineer people that we've had on and sort of check off the different ways that they've been involved with different projects, um, I think we could start to check off. Uh, we had Eddie Sato, who worked on the uh, theme building. And now this time, uh, there's uh, Doris Hardoon we've got on, on the show, and she helped to lead the design of the Gene Autry Museum. So these are Two people who have led projects that aren't Disney outside of Disney, but brought the Disney Imagineering mindset to bear. It's pretty cool to have these folks on our show. It really is. And actually, it really, um, you know, Doris worked really closely with Bob Weiss, uh, the president of Imagineering. And I know that Bob's experience with Design Island and doing outside work for clients uh, really helped him uh, understand uh, in a way um, just that different perspective of uh, of uh, outside consulting and I know Doris really leads you know feels that that was uh, a big contributing factor to her project success over the years so it just creates a different kind of perspective quote being out in the real world uh, right, <laughs> rather than just right. a corporate you know overhead uh, service department. Well, as we get into this really amazing interview that you did with Doris at the Storyland Studios sort of staff uh, encouragement luncheon, Our it was first so post-COVID cool. or kind of crawling yeah, out of that's COVID, right. kind of right. socially distanced mass gathering. We but, but it was a big deal because it was kind of a oh, reunion, uh, you know, not with not just with Doris, but with each other. <laughs> 
Yeah, right. We hadn't seen each other in so long. It's such a cool opportunity to kind of hear her story and some of the challenges that she had, especially in crossing overlapping cultures. You know, you talked about in the intro her being uh, maybe her crowning glory was the work that she did at Shanghai Disneyland. And that is famous for being a uh, place that crosses cultural contacts. Um, so how do you think, especially when you're trying to craft a story, how does that storytelling change, especially in, in environmental space, you know, in, in the things that surround you, how does that change within different cultural contexts? Well, you know, one of the things you need to understand, appreciate, you know, it's easy for, especially from an American perspective to think, oh, it must've been easy for Doris. Cause you know, she, as a child spent some time in China. So really not that big a deal. Well, you know, there's a big difference between, uh, you know, uh, Hong Kong, for example, where she was, uh, spent some time as a, as a child, uh, in mainland China, uh, i.e. Shanghai. Uh, there's also a big difference when you're crossing and working with native American tribes and, uh, different mm-hmm. stakeholders. I think the, the key thing about Doris isn't just the coincidental fact that, you know, she was Chinese or, uh, you know, a unique, uh, female Chinese designer within, uh, a, a largely white imagineering, uh, you know, uh, industrial, military industrial complex <laughs> in the mid-century. <laughs> but really, it's just her uh, his her posture of humility, of respect, uh, of of the willingness to be a listener, uh, to uh, be a, a cultural anthropologist, to be a historian, <laughs> to be uh, not just a storyteller, but a kind of a story taker. Um, and so mm, I think that's just, mm, it's just mm. special, but it's very wow. much core to her DNA and who she is. It, it's really impressive. Yeah. At the end of the episode, we gave an opportunity for people to raise their hands and ask questions. And you could just kind of hear from those questions that there's some some depth of understanding. And when you're in her presence, it's it's really it's something. It's something else. So I can't wait for our, our listeners to hear this. Today's episode uh, features our guest, who is a hero to many. Doris Hardoon helped bring so many Disney parks to life, from Epcot and Animal Kingdom here in the U.S. to Tokyo Disney, Disneyland Paris, and the biggest castle park on the planet, Shanghai Disneyland. And I mean, I guess what? She was a teenage pop star for crying out loud. It's kind of kind of amazing. So in this intimate episode, Doris tells us her story in her own words. Amazing. Detailing the lifetime of creative mentorship, which earned her the nickname Dragon Lady. Get ready for the ride of her life. It's time now for our interview with one of Disney's iconic women behind the parks, Doris Hardoon. Thanks so much for uh, the patience and getting it, getting uh, situated here, Doris. So, <laughs> let's give Doris a good uh, like, oh. welcome. She's been so generous, really giving us her entire day here. Not at all. It was so great to just be here, and I'm so honored, Mel. For well, inviting we keep thanking me. each other, but I know that I owe her a lot more than she owes me. So. No. Um, so anyways, uh, we've only Zoomed. Today was the first time we actually physically met. Uh, we've had a lot of near intersections at <laughs> Disney, but uh, you know, she's already kind of become uh, in line for my, my uh, Pam's my spiritual mom, but uh, Doris is probably going to be my design mom if, uh, if she signs up for the job. Yes. What? <laughs> yeah. So I haven't asked you yet, but you know, I'm praying. Chuck, Chuck taught me to pray big prayers. So, hey, uh, thanks again, guys, for gathering in person live. Um, and um, I just want to do a quick intro 
Um, and we're going to kind of get a, a theme going here, which is just really the idea of these epic God-sized journeys, right? And uh, I remember uh, sitting in the old fellowship hall on Main Street, and I think, Chuck, either you or you had like Ojo Taylor give a sermon on the, the, the parable of the mustard seed, you know, and that just stuck with me for life, that, the idea of the potential of a seed, you know, that in that potential is that essentially the, the DNA for an entire tree, uh, and then in that tree, there's a potential of an entire forest. And I mean, the, just the power of a, of a small little seed to, to ultimately turn into the kingdom, right? Uh, to this world that could and should be. And when I think of Doris, uh, and I think of all the gifting and all the beauty and all the personality, uh, I know you're like a, a model. You could have done lots of different things, <laughs> but to, to be uh, at the level of kind of an industry icon guru that she is today, oh, wow. Disney Imagineering Plus rock star, uh, if any of you are fans of that or seen that. Um, but just that this kind of theme of kind of a, a seed, small start, really starting, uh, and then kind of going global. Um, I wanted to kind of hit that on a couple different branches. Mm. But uh, so just as a point of orientation, and for those of you that don't know, when, when you left Imagineering, mm-hmm. formal kind of role, title, yeah, if that even matters. it seemed like it was thousands of years ago, but it was only a few months ago. But I was an executive creative director and a producer uh, working. My last project was actually, I just repatriated back from Hong Kong. But before then, and I'll get to that story. But um, before that, I was with Shanghai um, Disneyland and opened up that resort. And that that was like... Like Mel said, it's interesting how your life journey happens because my family is originally from Shanghai, both my parents, even though they're multicultural. So for me to go back and actually work there was pretty amazing um, and have the company give me that opportunity. But I did start with a very, very humble beginning. Um, I am from, as Mel kind of mentioned it, and you sort of see the images, is I'm originally born in Hong Kong and... uh, Um, grew up there and between 14 to 18 you know you kind of roll yourself into a lifestyle you don't even know what you're doing at the time I definitely didn't but and I certainly didn't follow a certain path that my parents are pretty traditional Chinese even though my mom's Chinese but my dad is French and Arabic but our upbringing and I got sent to a Catholic school And so I had a wide exposure of all kinds of things. And maybe that kind of got my brain going, or maybe it's the way my mom and my dad is. But I didn't really follow what my brothers and sisters felt like they needed to do. So I got into, um, I was a pop star, actually, for a brief time in Hong Kong. And uh, You looked like a pop star. I didn't even know that, though. (laughs) so funny it was just because you so you're, know you're at home on stage i'm feeling well, a little awkward you know it's like, been a oh, long finally, time finally i'm home it's been a long time but i just didn't know i just had fun doing it and it was great i, w- I made records and i had um i didn't have singing offers but i did have modeling offer to go to milan and be a model there but guess what i turned it down and instead at 18 i thought you know it's time to go i think when you're at that age you have no fear And um, you just sort of felt like, okay, because my brothers and sisters all left, and I thought, I need to go. So I said, I'm going to go. And so I just chose San Francisco. I think all Chinese people seems like always end up in San Francisco. (laughs) But I'm glad because it was really comfortable there. I loved it. Uh, But I didn't know what I was doing when I got there. I 
I didn't have a plan. I wasn't in design. I didn't do anything like that. I just actually, I wanted to be a dancer. So I went and found a school. It was Academy of Ballet, San Francisco Academy of Ballet. And if you can envision somebody, I was like five foot nine with trying to do ballet at age 18. It's probably not a very good idea. <laughs> I didn't do too well in ballet, but I switched to jazz dancing and I did pretty well. I really liked it. Um, but then I realized I had a slight problem. I cannot pirouette, I cannot turn, I cannot spin. Um, I'm extremely highly, highly motion sensitive still to today. So I figured that's probably not a good thing for me to carry. And besides my practical side sort of kicked in and I thought, okay, maybe I need to be something a little bit more uh, practical that I could make money off of and have a longer duration time because dancer, I don't know, you know, you don't laugh. So you went from dancer to artist. Yeah. <laughs> I figure, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of lazy because I thought, okay, I can't get into a regular school because I'm really horrible with studying and it tenses me really bad when it comes to taking tests and I, I don't want to do math. I don't want to do, you know, biology and physics and so I thought, well, maybe I could draw my way through. So I walked in at, you know, back in 1970. Probably most of you guys weren't even born. But when I went to California College of Arts, it was because I was an international student. They wanted, I mean, the money is always more. And I just walked in. I had no portfolio, nothing. I didn't even know what I wanted to do. And they just said, sure, come on in. And come and be a designer. I thought, okay. So four years later, I was a graphic designer and I didn't realize I'm really good at it. And I was kind of, okay, I loved it. And so I was quite fortunate with that. And so, like Mel said, the seed kind of kept growing and maybe I'm lucky and don't ask me how I got my first job. It was like a blur, but I got my first job with Marine World, AFCA USA. I don't know how many of you know Talk that. Talk about a humble start, yeah. Uh, I love it. Today it's it. a Six Flags Park. Yes, but back in the day it was owned by Michael Demetrius. It was a family-owned small little land and sea theme park in uh, Palo Alto, south of San Francisco. I love animals, so I don't know, maybe that was my vision. I just wanted to be somewhere where there were animals. So I got in there as a graphic designer, um, but pretty soon I realized they needed help for everything. So my training in school, which is mostly 2D collateral work and print work, I quickly went into 3D from signage to costumes to sets to murals. We were doing it all. Not only designing, I was actually painting them, which is pretty cool. And, and that's I one think, of the benefits of those yeah, small regional park exactly. operations. You don't get stuck in that exactly. disciplinary box. Well, right? you didn't know, and you just kind of did it. I even did merchandise design and um, marketing work. It was cool. How big was the creative team at Marine World Africa? Me and one other. <laughs> <laughs> I hired uh, John Horney later on, and we were the wow. two. And our office used to be a giraffe barn. So it was very narrow and very vertical. I just wondered why it was that shape before I realized it was for the giraffes. But um, If you don't know John Horney, look up his name. He's kind of one of these amazing. Herb Ryman level yeah. Yeah. illustrators. He, he was kind of like my connection. And the two of us were in there trying so hard. We did everything from mural painting and we even did, um, I remember, screen printing. 
in a giraffe barn, which has, you know, holes everywhere. It was very breezy, so it was very dusty, and it was kind of not too easy to handle. But what I loved about it was every morning we used to have all the um, animal handlers would walk their animals, you know, before the park opened. So we'd have uh, lions go by and leopards go by and elephants go by, and we used to have all kinds of ducks on the property, and they would go by, so it was really, really cool. I loved it. And uh, so that was one of my first jobs, and I was there for four years, and I think that was how I learned about the entertainment industry, because it just opened me up to say, hey, I could do anything, right? Yeah, and what good fortune to be in a situation where you didn't have those disciplinary boundaries of None. staying in 2D vector yeah. design and, yeah. and staying in a lane. It was cool, and I think, you know, it was, when I think back now, I realized it was the team that helped me. It was a bunch of young people, and they all knew how to do everything. We had welders, we had carpenters, we had all kinds of folks. And they just allowed me to do anything I wanted. So they just showed me. And so I was in the mall shop. I knew how to cut, you know, band saws and this and that. And I didn't cut anything off my hand. I did cut a <laughs> part of my finger off. Ten fingers. That was okay, yeah. But you learn the hard way. <laughs> but it was really a wonderful, it was like an extension off of college. It became my graduate that's school. a real graduate degree, yeah. right? Yeah, and it was really learning it uh, for real. And that's also when I realized um, you could design all you want, but if it's not doable, it's not applicable, or it can't be built, or it's not for the purpose of what it's for. Well, when you're in screaming distance of the client and the operators that can come to you when there's a problem, exactly. that, that, that'll learn yeah. you real quick, right? Exactly. And, and all of the trainers that were working with the uh, animals, they had specific requirements, so you had to follow that. So I kind of learned a lot of things that I wouldn't have even be understood in school. They don't think about those things. So I was very grateful for that. And my boss at the time actually had um, worked for Disney. He was a character artist there. And um, after about four years-ish, we felt, well, maybe we can get some freelance work or something. So the two of us flew down to LA, and I didn't know any better at the time. But we got an interview at WDI, which is Walt Disney Imagineering in Glendale office. And um, I remember this conference room. I think it was called Florida Conference Room. It was near the front very dark, and there were three guys in there that were interviewing us, and it was Marty Scalar, John Hench, and Rolly Crump. And I had no idea who they were, right? These were just guys in there looking at my portfolio stuff. And at the end of it, I think Marty and John felt, right, great, she's graphic, so let's hire her. She's walking, she's alive, let's do it, because we need people. We need people for Epcot, you know, because they were gearing up on Epcot. And I didn't know. I, I'm not really a Disney person, because Hong Kong, when I grew up, I didn't really understand any of that. We weren't exposed to any of those things. And um, so I thought, okay, freelance, right? They go, no, you're hired, <laughs> you can come work here. I went, okay, you know, so you kind of roll with it. And I was so lucky um, that they decided to give me that job. And it was really Rolly that said, no, I don't want her in graphics. I think she belongs in show. And back in those days, there was no such thing as entertainment design. Design was design. You know, whatever it is, you were a designer. And it was called show department. So Roly got me involved with that, and so fortunate that I had him as a mentor. I had all these names like Walt Paragoy. I had 
ex-extensio who would always walk around in his wild flamingo pants and he's always like with a golf club <laughs> putting and having a great time. These guys were really funny. And uh, Mary you don't Blair, know these names. We'll just buy a Disney Imagining yeah, Legends book amazing, for you to bone up. Amazing yeah, these people. These guys are all legends. And so I was trained by them. And Walt had already passed away, so unfortunately I didn't get to meet him. But these guys are the closest, like the first degree of separation from Walt. So I got to learn the next level. So it's a next graduation <laughs> graduate class that I had to get involved with. And we were launched right into Epcot. So the so you go from a regional grew. park that's now a Six Flags before you even had any rides right, to the right. most expensive yeah. uh, construction project in the world, the biggest yeah. theme park by far. Yeah, we had no that's clue. We were all scale. like blind leading the blind a little bit, you know. But we got involved. We got shipped off to Orlando, and I was down there for. I didn't live there for the whole time. I was in and out a lot, but basically six years. And uh, my job originally when I was hired was for actually Life Health Pavilion, but it never happened. They couldn't get their funding together for that pavilion. So I got put onto land and I worked with um, Rolly and a team of three other lead designers and I was one of them, and my it's job It's fair to say that Rolly was kind of one of Walt's favorite designers. He, I, I he was so. kind of got accused of some I favoritism, so. so. Yeah, it was. I mean, and he did the a World's Fair. You know, Rolly had the name for that, and Small World went there, and so there's a lot of history related to uh, Rolly and the whole connection with his past. So, again, I was so fortunate. I was paired up with him, and he kept teaching me uh, on the job, so... We just kept going and you don't ask questions you just go do it right because we had a deadline we got to go and epcot i don't know how many of you know but experimental prototype community of tomorrow it was a pretty cool idea it was walt's dream and unfortunately rolly on stage there never lived in the middle yeah and you see my hairstyle i think i had 20 million different types of hairstyle through my career and you all know what time frame it was that was that was the suzanne plachette for those of you who know who she is yeah, that was pretty funny. And that was my dear, dear friend, Jeff Burke. He's an amazing designer. So we got set on our course to do Land Pavilion. I, I had the Farmer's Market, which is the center area, and worked with Walt Paraguay, who created a lot of the styling for that space. But my job was to come up with the Farmer's Market, food stall, the whole sitting area, and the Harvest Theater. And what an amazing uh, experience. Again, you know, I didn't know what to ask because I didn't know what to ask if I didn't know. But Roly just let us go. Great guidance, uh, great supporter as a boss, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, still one of the best places to eat in the future world. Uh, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and really kind of a cool postmodern indoor-outdoor kind it of is. county fair yeah. with the balloons. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, it's still just wonderful. It's still yeah. great food. Yeah. Kinda. Uh, forerunner to the whole food hall kind of mm -hmm. craze. But yep. So, Certainly again, is. that journey from a uh, humble little regional park to Epcot, this kind of a big deal, mm -hmm. uh, paradigm-setting park from, you know, graphic design into um, kind of multidisciplinary Multi, yeah. uh, design. How about, the, what's the, the compare-contrast from, you know, being at that two-person department to mm -hmm. <laughs> however many thousand-plus Imagineers? Uh, at Epcot from a corporate culture and, and productivity efficiency? I think back then, um, on the corporate culture side, we didn't feel it as much. Um, it was definitely a family feeling, and I think everyone was so kind to all the newbies, um, but 
at the same time, we were so involved because Epcot was very, very stress-oriented of time schedule and responsibility. So we just had a great time doing what we had to do. Um, I didn't really feel any different because it, our team was very tight and small enough that we kind of connected with each other and we all lent a hand with each other. So I really didn't feel that change until the company continued to change and grow. And it's with leadership. It's always with leadership. But um, Epcot took a huge sort of a push for me into the industry and understanding. And that's when I expanded my role. Designer, stylist, and then they gave me responsibility additional to the land are all the showcase um, galleries. And this is a funny story because back then, we kind of did everything, but um, this really truly was an opportunity because one day, I, I'm not quite sure how it all worked out, but they said, oh, we have galleries that we want to open up for a showcase side, which are all the pavilions that had to do with different countries. And specifically, there were seven countries that had the galleries in them. And they're not large spaces. About, I mean, these are like Smithsonian-level yeah, curated uh, museums. Yes. The collection is of that caliber, and that was part of the mission. And also, it was related to each of the country's art artifacts. And that was pretty cool. So we had to do relationship building on that end and then get the collection organized, ship it over, create all of that inventory. And again, it was just me and Joan Adan, who was the registrar. And it was just the two of us. And that was when I learned sort of the left brain, right brain, that I had that ability, left brain, right brain, and creatively came up with all the galleries. I designed 17 exhibitions. The average had to rotate because of the collection quality and standard. 17, well, yeah, each one was about 18 months to two years max, and we rolled it out and changed for another. Um, but that was when I learned about the balance between design and, and uh, producing it. And I think I was probably one of the first that was sort of deemed as the producer. And, you know, you think about producer, it's not like anything, you know, major. All it is is that you knew how to get it finished. That's it, right? How to get it organized, make sure it's on budget, make sure it's on schedule, and just get it done. Whereas I guess if you were just purely related to the concept or the creative side, you can kind of go on this la-la land of saying, hey, I'm going to design it and go, bye. I don't really know why I was just getting it. Looking at you, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I enjoy it. I mean, I really do. I enjoy that balance because I, I'm a, I was just talking to Mel over lunch about this on Myers-Briggs. I'm an ENTJ. So I'm a driven. Same I as Pete, by it. the way. That'll scare you. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to deliver. I want to get it finished. And uh, so that, that was an opportunity. And it was perfect because it was small enough. And I had control enough to figure out how I get the, get the finished completed. But what was so great personally is I got to meet all these international curators from all over the world because they brought the collection. And then they, in turn, were like kids in a candy shop when the crate was open and we had to unveil all of the artifacts, especially for China, because all the artifacts came from um, the, um, uh, the famous museum of the Forbidden City. And so many of the collections no one had ever seen before. So it was the first time, which was pretty cool. So that kind of got us rolling. And then they came to me and said, okay, I think, so Tishman family, I don't know how many of you know of Tishman name, their construction, big construction group, but 
the family's very wealthy, and I don't know how they got the collection. Big New York developer yeah. contract. They built Epcot, and yep. they own the Swan and Dolphin Hotel. That's right. And they had a huge collection, African collection, and they gave it to uh, Disney. And so they came to me and said, can you design uh, a museum for the African collection? So I did. But, you know, there's some successes and there's some happy stories and some not so happy stories. And this was a not so happy story. They couldn't get the funding through any of the, the various African countries that many of this collection had come from. And um, we had to not see it through. So I got it all the way to conceptualizing it and ready, feasibility schematic and ready to go. And then they kind of stopped it and abandoned it. So that was kind of a bummer. But I have the artwork, so maybe one day, who knows, we might be able to do it. But uh, yeah, that was one of my highlights. And the odd thing, how I got into the exhibition design was when I was at California College of Arts, um, two summers, I got a job with the De Young Museum in San Francisco, which is a very reputable fine art museum. But what was funny is my job was just a little in the back graphic assistant, intern, sort of apprentice person to Ron Rick, who ran it. And all I did was just the graphics um, collateral pieces. You know, back then it was like letter and hand setting everything. And on the day when they were trying to figure out who's gonna design all these showcase exhibitions, they said, and it was funny, it was almost like everybody took a step back and I ended up standing there by myself and they said, she could do it because she went and she was work, working at the De Young Museum and I went, no, all I did was just the graphic stuff. I don't know how to do exhibition design. And so they just kind of went, go for it. You know, I went, okay, I'm gonna go for it. And that was again, you know, it's that attitude back then was you just go with it. And that's how I believe design in general is relatable, is transferable, because I've already learned about composition, color, proportion, foreground, middle ground, background through all even 2D graphics. And it's all, you could move it into a 3D environment. So that's what I did. So then that's the whole opportunity that opened me up to exhibition design. And since then, up to fast forward now, I've designed probably about five different um, uh, cultural museums around the country and I also designed for about a year and a half. I designed the Finding Our Families uh, exhibition in um, Museum of Tolerance here in Los Angeles at Beverly Hills and they were kind enough to ask for us to design the uh, version of it in uh, Jerusalem. And so I worked for 18 months with Frank Geary's team. He did the building and then we designed the uh, exhibition for it. And at the time it never happened because they ended up finding out it was a burial ground where the property was in old, old town, in the old section of Jerusalem. So it's been going through a lot of changes. And then since then we got off. But yeah, it kind of exposed me to that whole world and I love it. I really enjoy working with uh, artifacts and, and, and just the art objects and the value of it and, and the meaning behind each one. And, and that was the experience I had. Um, I was probably one of maybe two people at Walt Disney Imagineering that gets loaned out in my career. And I got loaned out to design the Gene Autry Museum. And I spent five years on that project and it was the best time in my entire life, if I had if to If you say. haven't been, it's like an indoor 
Disneyland. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's odd. Since I finished and opened it, it's been over 30 years. I haven't really gone back. So I, I kind of don't want to see how it looks, you know, if they, because a lot of museums don't have the funding to continue to upkeep or even rotate or change like they should. Um, so I'm afraid to go check it out. But it was an amazing, formidable point in my life. I, I, um, I couldn't thank enough. I made lifelong friends with, well, Gene, of course, had passed, but uh, his wife, Jackie's still here. And then Joanne Hale was my mentor. She was an amazing woman, and she was the president of the, um, it was a funny story. The two ladies ran the whole museum, and the two gents, Gene and Monty Hale. So I don't know if you guys know, Monty Hale was Gene Autry's sidekick in all the movies that they, they play, um, acted in. And the wife is Joanne Hale, who's the president, and she's my mentor. And the two, the two ladies would be hard at work at, you know, at work and tasking us to do everything we had to do. But the two guys would show up every day. And in in I remember one time the two ladies said, okay, come on, let's go outside and we need to say hi to the guy. I said, well, what? Okay, so we went out there and this huge convertible Cadillac with the steer horn in the front. I mean, I'm not kidding, it's like in the movies. It was amazing. And the two guys with their cowboy hats, Stetsons with the, and it's a white colored, beautiful cowboy hat would drive up and they would take their hat off. Hi ladies. And they would do that every time. And I just love it. They were such great people. A handshake meant the contract and they were honest and they will follow through. It was just an era that I enjoyed, but yeah. It was a lot of artifacts. It was 20,000 pieces of artifacts that um, I designed mounts for every single one and all the casework. So that was really cool. I loved it. Well, zooming out, you know, in terms of the idea of designing outside the berms, mm -hmm. you know, outside of the, the official parks, uh, eventually to uh, Disney Town. We'll talk about that in Shanghai, but yes. I want to talk about on the theme of sad stories, the one that got away. Uh, this is the project yeah. that made me apply to Disney to begin yeah. with, which uh, Westcott, we got to talk right. about that, that yeah. evolution of the, the Epcot idea yeah. into something that you could actually spend the night in and live the dream. Yeah, I, that was one that got away. And, you know, you don't know when you're in your life career what comes your way. And again, I, I think maybe my fairy godmother, or <laughs> I don't know what I had, but I got handed... Um, the uh, the challenge to design two theme parks against pitting the two cities against each other. So one being, as Mel said, the Westcott Center project, which is for Anaheim, and it actually went into was supposed to be for the um, the parking lot, and which is right now California Adventures. And then the other pitting against is the Long Beach, uh, San Pedro area, and we Port called Disney it, and Disney. Yep. We called it Disney Sea, which eventually Tokyo picked up that name and used it for that park. But not a bad park, by the way. Oh man, that park! If you guys can go see that one, it, don't go because when you come back to Disneyland, it'll look like an armpit. <laughs> I don't recommend it. It is an amazing park, I have to say. I enjoy that park a lot. But at the time, um, the task was pretty formidable. Same team, and you know, I talk a lot to people now about casting. Casting the right team and enjoying working together is end all. It's relationship. And that was what we had on this team. It was a very small collective team and we worked back and forth and we had to do both jobs. 
had to do both parks, same schedule, basically same budget, and we had to pitch it at the same time, and we did. It took four years to get it to, it passed feasibility schematic, we were already into design development, and we had another probably three more years to go to even get it close to into the field. And the sad story was, you know, sometimes you don't know what's being thought. And I, I think, no, it's more about that was when you really realize we're there to do a job. We're there to create something that's going to ultimately be uh, accepted and that it can be made and produced and it fits the bill from budget. It's always budget oriented, right? And uh, boy, I tell you, that was a heartache because we took it to that point and in the end, Anaheim kind of won out. So the focus was more on that project instead of the Disney Sea. And they pulled it and just said after about five years by that time, they just said, nah, we're not going to do it. And that was hard. You know, it was hard to get the team to not feel All rejected. because of spreadsheet problems on, a, on a pro forma for Disneyland Paris. Yeah, you know, it was. Kind of overly building hotel rooms. And I feel pretty confident that that's true because in the end, the product they did, not that Disney, uh, California Adventures isn't a great park, but their budget was very low and it was different. And I know that team struggled to get that park in and it was Bob. Weiss later on that came back and kind of outfitted it more and expanded on that. But um, Westcott to me was one that, and I think I gave Mel a little <laughs> something today. Um, we were really convinced we were going to get it done and it would have been an amazing park. And the irony of it all was eventually the California Adventure budget was the same as the budget that I had. Yeah. And it didn't work. At Spread the over time. ten years, but <laughs> Spread over, yeah. Yeah, so. Dennis wants uh, this piece uh, for the archives. I said, "Forget you, man. I'm. <laughs> I, this is in my personal collection. It's one of the four comps of the the uh, brochure, yeah. park brochure for Westcott." Yeah, we did even internal marketing. We were pitching it. We were sending, showing it to our executives. So we had printed out a, a sort of a mock map. Uh, like a brochure like you would have gotten once the park would have opened and we created the whole thing everything from merchandise all of that and um i yeah great job by the way judson green and wing chow two yeah. two more of uh, my personal no. mentors and amazing oh, people you know judson yeah. has passed yeah. yeah that was great time and um, when we pitched the uh, Westcott, we decided to do it at the Anaheim Convention Center. And this was a big deal because we had to pitch it to the town, the mayor, I don't know who it was, all these big di dignitaries came. And I designed the whole uh, presentation. I loaded in a hundred um, orange trees into the convention. And I was so worried that that convention floor wouldn't hold the weight, you know, because it was on an upper level. Because I wanted them to understand it's going onto a piece of property that had such story and historical because it was all orange grove back in the day before Walt came. And so there was some like connection. this property, all lemon groves. <laughs> yes, and connected back. And so the whole place had an, a, a beautiful sort of fragrance about it from the orange. Well, I kind of pumped it in too. So <laughs> Smellitizers. Helped a little bit, yeah. But it was just an emotional place. And um, everybody was so gung-ho for it. So when it got pulled, it was, 
a little tough to take. And that was kind of the catalyst for me because up to that point, I think Epcot was my close to heart because it was my first. And Gene Autry, that was one that I loved. And then Westcott, and then I quit. <laughs> I quit after that. That was 22 years already with the company. And uh, I think by that time, you know, life goes on, right? You, our, our career lives mixed in with our life life. Sometimes it blends so tight that you forget that your life should be number one and career should be number two. <laughs> and you forget about it, you know. And I had two kids in between all of these projects, literally. I had, I think when Paige was born, she was 1990. And so I was in the midst of all the Westcott and the Disney Sea. It was tiring. It was really tiring. I was traveling a lot too. And the kids all kind of ended up at baby school. I was saying I, was, I went back to work after two months and I had to put them into baby care. And literally, you know, these kids were at baby care from 6.30 in the morning till about six at night, or they're longer than me, you know, because of the time and the driving. So I think that mixed with just my own feeling of how I felt about the whole industry at that point, because it has changed, you know, the family, factor that I grew up with at that company, um, it was a little different and I didn't know quite how to deal with it. So I thought, okay, I need to go. And you know, sometimes in life, there's something that's tugging at you. It's your gut, it's your, whatever you want to call it. Um, at least I listened to it and I thought, I'm going to make that leap. So we packed up the kids, you know, I was married then at the time and dogs, cats, lizards, everything, sold everything in LA and we moved to Vermont and loved it. And we just kind of did a, I did a whole concept board for where to go, you know? <laughs> like, yes, no, yes, no, all the pictures. I wanted the Four Seasons. I wanted to experience all that from Hong Kong, you know, season, it's like, what? And we ended up in this beautiful little town. If you haven't gone, go Manchester Village, which is about half an hour north of Bennington, surrounded by four theme, um, ski resorts and full season. Uh, it was just amazing. And I think it changed the whole dynamic of our family. So it was my guilt, you know, as a mom, like I didn't have time with my girls. So this was like pay forward and pay backward you know, to them. So they got to experience that whole lifestyle. Everything got relaxed. You know, it was so tense by the time I left, it was relaxed. And it took about 10 years for me to kind of get into that. But I joined my, my husband and I formed a design company and we continued doing, we were supporting Disney from afar and built new relationship. And that's how I, one of our key and friend relationship was the Oneida Indian Nation. And we did a lot of work for them uh, and many others around that area. I love the East Coast, um, like that whole environment. So, and like if that's not enough, moving the girls and they're like, why are we moving mom? Mom's gotta go, so we gotta go. So we went and we opened up a bakery as well, because I'm a real foodie person. I love eating, especially you sing, the bakery. You dance, you draw, you cook, <laughs> you, got, you bake. You're killing me. Well, okay, <laughs> I have to say, I'm not actually the baker. So my husband then, who's an architect, he, I didn't know he was into food. So he, um, he went back and he got his, he's a classic French pastry chef. He got his degree. So he was the baker, was there at four in the morning. That's his problem. And then... <laughs> I laid out and designed the whole place, but I actually bought all of the condiment things because I, I like to 
cook. I, I'm a great cook, and I like to do all that, entertain. And there was nothing there in that 4,000. There was 4,000 people in this village, and um, they didn't have the same kind of food environment. So I figured, hey, if I could just get into that food thing, I could go buy all the food products I want and write it off, then I get the benefit of using all those things. And then I was actually having a vision where maybe I could get out of this entertainment design environment world and be the Chinese Martha Stewart over that end and sort of set up all these environments. Because they were like party animals town. I mean, these people were like partying all the time. And I could set up a whole evening for them, you know, like a Chinese theme. I could cook them the meal. I could set it all up and Japanese, whatever they want, I could do it. And it didn't work because it was really hard doing that job and then doing a full-time design job. It was not easy. And the seasonality of that whole place, we underestimated. It didn't work. You had to really make your money in two seasons out of four. And it was tough. But I got a taste of it. Maybe one day we'll come back. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. You know. Sounds picturesque. <laughs> it was gorgeous. Absolutely. Um, so who, who uh, roped you back into Imagineering? Was that Bob? Well, or? you know, um, my two girls are six years apart. The older one ended up at Skidmore, graduated with graphics. So both my girls are in the industry. And she was working in New York. So then the second one, um, Paige, decided to go to Art Center. So, you know, you do, as a parent, you do anything you want, you have to do for your kids. And so we thought, well, maybe it's time to come back because she wanted to go. And she got accepted. And that was already in um, about 10 years into living there. And we felt, you know, in our industry, you kind of need to be looped around with people. It felt a little lonely <laughs> after a while. We would send people out to us, but, you know, we weren't around, like if you're in this area. And um, when Paige said she wanted to go to Art Center, we felt, well, maybe that's our calling. It got take again, and maybe it's time to go back. And as soon as that hit, I mean, it's not like I even posted it or sent out an email. I don't know. The word just got around really fast. And then I get this email from Bob Weiss saying, hey, I heard you're coming back. I went, how did you know that? You know, I didn't say anything. So, yeah, when we moved back, he said, come on in. Let's talk a little bit. And so I saw him around summer of um, 09, I think, 09, 010. And... He talked me into, well, you know, because he knows I speak Chinese, I speak Cantonese, my family's from Shanghai. He figures he can hook me with that and go, you know, maybe you want to come in on this Shanghai project. I went, uh, uh, well, okay, let me hear what it is. And so he got me in. He goes, you know, just half time, maybe 20 hours, nothing much. Well, you know, it's no more than like two weeks. I was already like 40 hours and it's like full time work. But it was great. It was perfect. It was just a way for me to pay forward for myself, for my team, for people, whatever, and just for me, myself, even. Just to get back into the whole Shanghai thing was pretty amazing. So to be sent to Shanghai, live in Shanghai, and experience my heritage um, was kind of wild. I never would have thought in a million years that the company would send me to my own home roots. And I've been there only once, and it was a really hard trip, the first trip, because of there was a lot of reasons. I went with my mom and the stories that she would tell me growing up and I finally got it. I finally saw the kinds of lifestyle and their upbringing and it was hard to see it. Um, 
And it was right at the time, if you guys saw the movie Spielberg's uh, Empire of the Sun, I can't even finish watching that movie. It was so hard for me because it was exactly their time. And they escaped 1949 to leave there to come to Hong Kong on all persecution. And, and yeah, so then going back there and seeing it, and then mom, my mom literally there walking me through and telling me, here's this, here's that, whatever. And oof, it was really hard. So I never went back. So this was hard to think about, oh, am I going to make it? Can I do this? And I thought, I'm going to do it because I think I need to do it. So I went. And it, it is pretty cool. It's a great city. It's beautiful. If you can go there, it's the juxtaposition very different from here of the old and new in a very different way. And I reconnected. And my Shanghainese is, is very much of the old school that my parents taught me. So today's Shanghainese is a combination of Putonghua, and it's a kind of a clusion of the two, which sounds very different. So when I was there, and especially the taxi drivers, and especially if they're about my age, you know, we kind of check each other out. We go, okay, we're about the same age. And I speak in my Shanghainese, and they'll go, oh my God, you're speaking like of the traditional, the classic, which is pretty cool. So there's still those folks there. <laughs> But the young ones are all kind of looking at me going, you know, wow, she's talking kind of old school. <laughs> so they're looking at me like, wow, okay, mom, you're like my mom. So yeah, I have a lot of kids over there because they all deem Sounds me like as their mom. Sounds like my house and my kids today. <laughs> yeah, really? yeah. <laughs> so, so the two separate billion-dollar projects get away, but then you get handed the, the four-plus-billion-dollar most yeah. expensive theme park in history uh, yeah. to be built. Um, That was pretty amazing. the challenges, you know, as far as adapting culture and, and being almost a... Uh -huh. cultural anthropologist and being in this middle space of, you know, kind of American and Chinese. Yeah. What, a, what a journey, you know, in terms of designing for a different audience. It was a what, journey. What's the biggest uh, lessons learned or, you know, paradigms that, that you saw in that process of translating what Disney had been doing for so many decades mm. and years in a Western audience to mainland China? I think it's don't take it for granted that you can roll it out and you need to really stop and think about what that project's about, who, who are the audience. And we forget that, because as designers, you're passionate. You're, you're wearing your heart on your sleeve. You're, you're kind of doing what's in your heart, and that's what we want from you, right? But then you sort of get too close, and you need to step back and go, okay, I'm not designing this for myself. <laughs> It's designing for the, you know, for China. It's like, Shanghai is 30 million people, just Shanghai. And you have to understand why. And so that was a little bit interesting of a learning curve for the team. Um, I wouldn't say it's because I know it all, but I will say it made a huge difference because of my upbringing and the heritage and that I can speak the language and I get it. And so we ended up bringing, you know, a, a base of um, Chinese from mainland China that would be part of our team. And we became sort of like the internal ambassadors to help our fellow team members to understand the subtleties of things. And Chinese is different. We're not all alike. I mean, Hong Kong Chinese versus mainland Chinese is two different um, styles and personality and behavior. And um, that was a learning curve. Uh, I think amidst coming up with a concept That's not a rollout concept of, let's say, Magic Kingdom or Tokyo, and, but a unique one, because that was the demand. 
So I don't know how many people knew about the ownership. You know, majority is owned by this acronym, and don't ask me what that acronym. I can't even remember. To re but it's Shendi, who is a combination of government and uh, investors, and they own 57%. And Disney's ownership was 43%. And so we had we sort of had a client, you know, and we had to have a a, a good partnership. And so many of the elements were dictated to us subtly. It's all the Chinese way. And you had to hear it, you have to listen to it, and you really had to abide by it. And at first, the classic was our team just assume, oh, we're going to China, so we're just gonna build pagodas and you know, lots of dragons everywhere, and they're all like winding up in a, in fact, you know, gotta go up on the castle and their stuff. And I think it became very clear, no, that's not, the way to do it. And I think our partners, the Shendi, also said, why do we want you to replicate what it is that we have just across the street for real? And you're replicating. And so I think that became a, a, a strong sort of base, a strong catalyst for us to really think out of the box. And it wasn't until Bob Iger, um, the CEO of the company, who was at the groundbreaking, and he kind of credits himself as saying, I didn't think I was going to say this, but I said it. And what he was standing there and he went, authentically Disney, distinctly Chinese. And it's so smart he said that. So it became the ADDC factor for us. When he first said that, all of us went, well, what did he mean by that? You know, what the heck does that mean? Authentically Disney, distinctly Chinese. But then when we started breaking it down, it was so brilliant. So it was the subtlety between the balance, it's the yin and the yang. The whole part, I feel, has that point. We still had a huge amount of our DNA, the, the Disney DNA. So if you experience Tron in Tomorrowland, it was pure us. And then if you experience Pirates of the Caribbean, pure us. But then the areas that I was in, which is at the front entrance, to the hub, to the castle, that was my area of responsibility in the beginning, it was the chance for me to sort of play off of what I think that culture needed. And the thought about 421, if you've heard of that, is that culture is very much a four grandparents, two parents, and one child. And that's part of the, the government policy. I think before we left, Shanghai allowed for two child uh, in a family, but forever it was one child. And so Kids are precious to a family unit, and grandparents were assumed to take over, and they watched the grandkids while the parents work or do whatever. So the idea is when they came to this park, my idea was I need a place for the four and the one so that they could feel integrated and enjoy themselves while the parents took off and went on the you know fast rides at Tron or you know go into the uh, pirates that would have scared the the baby or scared the grandparents. So I was able to, and again, the push was unique, distinct, you know, like what Bob Iger said, and we changed the hub, which normally would have been, it is the traditional spoken wheel where all guests come to and then you can go to your different lands and then you come back to the center and that's where the castle is. Um, we changed it to a land of its own 
of its own. So it's called the Gardens of Imagination. It is 11 acres and it had the longest parade route in the world. So this park, and, and it's if, the first theme park in the world that actually has a park in the middle of that's it. That's right. What a concept. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right, right? And it is a cut, you know, and maybe now if we do a seventh uh, castle park, not we, I'm no longer with it, but maybe they'll hire well, us. Well, we can. Do, we can. <laughs> Forget them. <laughs> and maybe there will be a park moving forward because it's a brilliant idea, I thought. <laughs> but, um, but I think at the end, having those kinds of subtle elements of a actual garden park, and I convinced to bring the two rides, the, the small, what we call A, a rides or AB rides back in the day, um, the carousel and the Dumbo into the, that land, it gave the opportunity for the grandparents to be able to ride those rides as well as with the babies, as well as with the grandkids. And it's garden enough that they have respite so they can enjoy, they love outdoor, they love the environment, they love landscape because they're usually living in a concrete jungle kind of environment. So I was able to exercise all of those attitudes and Bob Weiss, who was in charge of the whole project portfolio, luckily trusted me and others to say, go for it. You know, we, we know what you're after, We're, you know, we, we know how you're gonna figure it out. So it became a perfect balance to all the other lands. We had six lands for opening day. It's now seven, because we just, they just added Toy Story Land. Um, but it is, the biggest, it is the biggest park on opening day ever in the Disney company under a castle park. And it is the biggest castle it is the tallest and the widest and the deepest. And if you watch the Imagineering series, I'm in episode six and I talk about that. It's the widest, it's the biggest, and then they go boom, boom, boom. It's pretty funny, but um, Leslie Iwerks did a fabulous job. But it's true. Which is part of what makes it distinctly Chinese, right? That's <laughs> Especially right. Shanghai. That's right. That's what they want. Big and they is want a value. Unique. <laughs> Big is a value. And they want it on your right on your sleeve. And we... Um, put in an attraction, first time ever, Snow White, that, that Josh, your own little Josh here. Little Joshy. <laughs> little Joshy did it. Yeah, he worked on that and created the concept for it, which was pretty cool. But it was different. And then, and then Bob decided that um, since I took the castle to there, we do this often, you know, we, we move people around. And so he took me off of the castle and had me finish the garden. And then he moved me to um, the RD&E, the Retail Dining Entertainment District. I've never designed one of those before. Actually, I did. I didn't tell you, but I didn't show you the artwork that I have for Disney Downtown. Oh, I'm dying to see. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. But they didn't Because Downtown build. Disney was like Gardens of Imagination, one of those yeah. places inspired by Tivoli Gardens, which That's also right. That's inspired right. Walt to do yep. Disneyland. But the um, Disney Town, I know, it's so crazy. Why do we come up with all these names? But we didn't want to use Downtown Disney. It was sort of like a uh, franchise for that park. You know, it's branded. So we didn't want to use it. So we called it Disney Town for Shanghai. And it is the only one that was designed specifically backed up to the park. And there was a reason for it, is because we thought about um, the amount of attendance we would get. And it's true, that park had attendance on opening day that was so extreme. It was more so than even Tokyo, actually. It was pretty crazy. Um, was to have an overflow. 
So the way it was structured for phase one, it was very lineal and vertical, sort of like backed up against main entry. So like and parallel to main mm-hmm, street. Part of uh, the garden, and it had a opening, the entry point um, on the north end of the rd right into the Gardens of Imagination. And uh, so people can go back and forth. And the idea was, you know, the Chinese people, we love to eat. And, you know, the park food is... <laughs> so you know we so we and also we're able to then have different types of food to give to our guests. So the opening was I thought was brilliant is that we can then allow the guests to hand stamp at lunchtime and go grab something you know Chinese classes. So we had 42 tenants and I had to work with all tenants and all their design teams, which was fascinating and I loved it. And they had Chinese restaurants that are well known. In the air, so you had that that um, that connection and that tease, and then they could go back into the park and continue riding. So again, it's playing off of the four grandparents. They could come out and have lunch or dim sum or whatever, and then go back in, um, and it worked really, really great. And we also ended at that location the Walt Disney Grand Theater, which is an anchor, and that theater was designed with 1,200 seat. It's a Broadway level theater. And um, the idea was daytime, we would have a back door, you might say. So all the guests from the park had no idea. They line up on the park side, right by my garden area. And then we would wind them up and through off property, you know, out of Berm, and then into the theater for them to watch a, a Mickey's Review or something. And then we get them back out. And then nighttime, we would shut it down and switch it over, toggle it over to a night performance. So our opening day performance was um, the Lion King. And it was the first time ever. Everything had to be first time ever, unique, never done before, that type of thing. And it was the Lion King in Mandarin, which was pretty cool. Think about Lion King and trying to get all those actors, dancers, everybody <laughs> speaking Mandarin. That was pretty cool. Um, but they did all their songs still in English because... That was the hard part, I think, which confused a lot of our teammates because they thought if you're going to go Chinese, you have to flip everything to Chinese. But it's not true. It's the subtlety of that balance, right? It's that yin and yang that's very quiet. And so that's your ADDC again, authentically Disney, distinctly Chinese, is we would have the Chinese, the the Putonghua being spoken by the actors and singers, but then the singing was all in English, you know, because they wanted that combination. So... Yeah, so that part kind of worked out really well. And I loved designing the Ardini. It was a chance to, again, infuse and give respect and tip the hat to Shanghai uh, as the home base. So all five districts had um, elements of Shanghai familiarity from architecture. The Shukuman-style architecture was embedded in it. Um, Little, you know... uh, little mosaics, I kind of created little vignettes here and there, and it was really good. I, I embedded murals and little quiet moments, and so you discover them, and so, yeah, it was a real rewarding, very fun. Well, um, as we've gotten to know each other in just a short window, I know that your passion, your heart, you know, has shifted really into pouring into to others, and that, mm. so you talk about that journey again from being an individual contributor, you know, multidisciplinary design heavy lifter, but really into, again, raising up kind of that 
next generation and the way that you've done that, yeah. you know, uh, at Disney to unify global mm-hmm. teams that are mm-hmm. geographically, physically separated. And even, you know, knowing how much you poured into Josh over the years, and <laughs> that's special. Uh, he, he is special. Isn't he? Everybody just wants to hang out with Josh. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I think about that and maybe I wasn't as cognitive or aware until I was in Shanghai and my teammates, um, had no exposure to Disney, none of that brand, like me, I didn't have that exposure. So I had a relationship with that and related to it. And the language helped. And many of them were all in their 20s, 30s, 40s. And they have never had this kind of exposure or this awareness of design. And they had the desire to it, but they just didn't know. And many of the Chinese uh, family parents are very much, I heard this, this phrase called tiger moms, is, you know, they're just after the kid to be the best doctor and the lawyer and the business guy. Forget about what? <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. Um, like art, you know, what, what is that? You can't, It's a classic, right? And She got me operation every year till, till, until I started crying every time she would <laughs> force me to do operation. <laughs> It's hard. It's hard because, you know, you you see their passion in their heart, but they didn't know how to deal with it. So I kind of became their mom. And so I have a lot of kids all around the world, which I'm so happy with. And especially the Chinese one in Shanghai and Hong Kong. And it happens to be many of them are ladies and they need the extra encouragement and the confidence building. And they're all year of the dragon. I'm year of the dragon. So they all call me dragon mom. Well, that was also my name. You know, you know, I talk about titles and things and Titles don't mean anything to me, but the one title I will accept is when they call me Dragon Lady, and it's true. <laughs> it's like I like that one, but um, I I feel in my heart I didn't know early days, but it was then, and maybe it's my maturity, being there and connecting back to my roots. I felt the need to pay forward, and so I started developing a um, global connections group, and it was just very. Uh, very organic, just one by one, they just started coming to me to ask questions, talk about it, and you know, you mentor automatically, and mentoring isn't a checkbox, which I really have a problem with. Sometimes corporation mentoring, it is a checkbox. It's like as long as you sign up, you know, okay, great, you get a star. But it's not about that. It's about listening to people and appreciating them for who they are or what, what it is that they're not interested in or interested in and they need help for, whatever it may be. It could even just be there for them to tell you that, hey, you know, I just got married. (laughs) It's like, wow, okay, that's kind of cool. So I think throughout all of that process of three and a half years living there and then repatriating back from Shanghai, finishing up that job, um, Bob Weiss at that point got made president of Imagineering and they offered me to be sent back to Hong Kong at a huge opportunity, once in a lifetime, to start up a Walt Disney Imagineering Asia office. And when I heard that, I went, that's unbelievable. What, you're gonna open up an Imagineering in another part of the world? And I thought, yeah, I can't pass that up. And then on top of that, I'm being sent back to where I was born, you know, home, and I hadn't lived back there ever since I left at 18. I mean, obviously I'd go back and visit my mom and my dad had passed away already pretty early. But I thought, wow, I get to live there as an adult. So I said, yes, I did. So I went, moved right back. I literally changed my my crates and my luggage and then just flew right back there. And um, 
lived there for two years. So I was there from 16, 2016 to 18. And I had a double job. One was a functional job as the creative, leading the creative studio and setting it up for the Asia office. And then the other was the creative leader to lead the creative team uh, and to build that up in the park and lead the five-year five expansion project was just approved uh, for Hong Kong, which we finished. We're in Arendelle now, so we finished three of the five. No, four of the five and before I left. And um, that was continuum, another opportunity for me to pick up more dragon babies. You know, there were all those dragon babies there and guys and girls, and it was just great. And so I have a collection of 47 people around the world now that I touch on um, every month. I do calls with them and talk with them. And I'm, I want to pay forward because these are people who touch my life. And it's not just them. It's, it's everybody that comes across. And so I think it's important, you know, because I have the knowledge, I have experience. You don't have to believe what I say or do what I say or have done. But at least one of my quotes is, you know, if you want to know about where you're going to go, ask somebody who's been there, you know, who might be able to tell you something. And again, you don't have to accept it, but at least you might have some bandwidth or knowledge of what that is. And it's just helpful. And it's both ways, because I get support from them, which is pretty cool. So that's become kind of a point in my life now, after 45 years, I guess, in the industry, which is majority of my life. Um, it's not just the design. Sure, I love to, I think that's in, inherent of me, but to have that ability to, uh, to just speak about it or share is pretty cool. Pretty inspiring. Hey guys, I know we got started late. We're running a little late, but I definitely wanted to give everyone an opportunity if there's any uh, questions uh, from you guys. Kai, you mind uh, doing the mic if anybody? Any uh, thoughts I know? Uh, these guys are all dying because they've got deadlines. No, I know. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Questions, anyone? I got one. I noticed that a lot of the pictures, you were the only woman in the picture. So you were definitely the trailblazer. Was it hard uh, or was that, how big a factor was that for you? It's interesting. I get asked that a lot and you're right. I was probably one of two, only, first of all, Asian descent designer when I was hired. And then I continued to be probably one of a handful and then continued. And I would always be in these meetings like by myself and the rest. I never thought of it as different or I felt segregated or I was like pulled out as, you know, yeah, they probably had me in there so that they could check box saying, hey, we got the woman in there and we got the multicultural woman in there and she's a designer. And oh, by the way, she's a producer too. So we got it. Check, 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 check. It's, if that's how they want to do it, I don't care. It has nothing to do with me, but I was there. So I think it paved the way for others to feel you can get there and just be persistent. I don't think everybody is as aggressive. I don't think I'm aggressive, but I am aggressive. Maybe Josh will say how aggressive I am, but, but it's not aggressive. It's just being focused to believe in yourself, to know that why wouldn't I be in there? You know, I'm, I'm doing this job, so if you want me in there and want to hear what I want to say, I'll tell it to you. But, but I was raised very traditional, Chinese, very obedient. And I'll tell you this now, I'm not going to be that anymore. 
you know. So that's where I'm spreading the word to the young ones to say, you don't have to wait till as long as me to become like that. Speak up. Just be part of it and show that you're part of it. But it's, it's kind of hard because everybody's sort of thinking of the divide between a man, a woman. I, it doesn't matter to me. I, when I look at you, I feel I'm you. And it's also cultural, you know, and maybe because I was raised with Buddhist, Chinese mom, Jewish, French, Arabic, whatever, father, and then Catholic school. It's like, okay, I guess I got full exposure <laughs> of everything, and I'm like totally cool with it. I love it. And so that's why I don't have any issue with it, but I do know we need to be very vigilant and need to have that place. And so the only way you're going to get there is to speak up and to show your voice. Yeah, no, I never felt any different, but you're right. There are times when I go, hmm, yeah, all right, well, okay. Blinded by the white. <laughs> <laughs> well, a little bit, <laughs> true. <laughs> That's awesome. Any, any other questions? So in a situation, hi, hi there. <laughs> uh, so in this situation, all these designers in the room, there's a whole lot of projects that don't get made. And you put a lot of heart and a lot of sweat mm -hmm. into those projects. Uh, for one reason or another, they just don't, they don't come to completion. And yeah. you talked about multiples. And so mm -hmm. what, um, how do you deal with that sort of emotional investment and then this sort of separation? Now, well, it's not going to happen for now. Well, I picked up kickboxing after that and kind of deal with and, and drinking. No, I didn't. I didn't do either, but I didn't do either. It is hard. You know, you, you, I think that's one thing I'm telling a lot of people. Uh, I did a few talks lately with school and some of the junior, senior, graduate designers. I said, you need to toughen up your skin, thick skin. And it's not a negative, but it's really more about sort of protecting your heart a little um, because you are going to get rejection and that's life. And because I think that's the reality that many of the designers don't understand. You're not there designing for yourself. You're being paid. You're designing for a job and a purpose. And that purpose, if it doesn't in the end match, then it's not your fault. It's not like you screwed up or you didn't do a good job and they don't like your design and they're abandoning it. No, it's always about the end dollar. And you don't even know what's being talked about behind the door. Um, I was in some of those meetings and I kind of don't want to be in those meetings because that's not my job. I, you know, that's your job and, and you're asking me to do something. So I, I go in knowing when I have my team structure I let them understand, look, we're here to do something, but just know it may not always match because you've got hundreds of people making decisions for why something should be and not be. Because you're dealing with a lot of money. And if it was my job, and sometimes I would have to think, wow, I don't think I can afford this, or, well, maybe this isn't the right time. Something happened, and I can't do it now. So it's nothing to do with the team. So you try to encourage your team to say, it's not your fault, it's not because of design bad or whatever. But just realize that going in, there could be that opportunity. Or maybe it got delayed. Maybe a job got, because of the timing, didn't work out by a client. Um, unless it's your own money, it's hard to control. So you just have to support them. Yeah, with the reality. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Maybe one more, two more? 
you mentioned that you are a producer and a designer. Mm-hmm. How do you think doing both of those roles assisted you going forward? Um, I, again, I, I didn't know specifically, hey, I want to target myself to be a designer or I want to be a target producer. It just happened again, which was luckily for me during a time period um, where nobody knew about it. So I wasn't pressured to sort of apply for that title. I just did it. And then it became saying, hey, she could do it. Let her do it. You know, and it just kept rolling that way. So that was an ease for me to come in. The other thing I like about it, um, like Shanghai, I had that title both. And then other projects I did, I guess it's control. I, I, I have a control where I want to make sure it follows through. So the producer side came in and the practical side. Um, I find it very easy to do both because I don't have to talk to another person. I'm talking to myself, you know, so I'm arguing like go back and forth. And, and I don't have to do that too much because I'm pretty sensible about it and I'm very logical minded, but yet I can be extremely creative and I don't have to dive deep on both sides. If I need to dive deep, I'll get like a Josh. Go figure it out deeper. Go take it. Or if I need the money, go figure out finance guy. Go take, I don't want to deal with that part. But I have the high 30,000 foot level ability. I think every one of us have it. You know, I use the example, if you're going to do a renovation in your kitchen and you have to figure out how to do it, you're going to get your contractor, you're going to get the lighting guys, you're going to get whatever. But you already know your budget. You know, if you can only spend 4,000, and then suddenly you've got equipment, a refrigerator that is $2,000. You're gonna go, wait, I don't think I could do the other two for a whole kitchen, floor, ceiling. So you're already calculating, that's a producer. You're producing that environment already. You're trying to figure out how you're gonna to get to the end. So I think we all possess it. It's just whether or not you choose, you want to do that. It does take time to do both, but it doesn't bother me. I like it. Because, like I said, I don't have to worry about somebody else to have to talk to them. I just talk to myself. But, um, but, but yeah, no, I, I, I find it's okay. I, I, like I said, you're doing it already. You, you just not be given the title <laughs> to do it. Um, mine is really just a mini story, just to back up something else you said. And it was about being a mentor. Um, Doris, for everyone in this auditorium, was the reason why. I got hired by Disney because Disney rejected me four times through my 20s and my 30s. And you being here means a lot to me. Hmm. Um, So I just wanted to thank you because the mentorship is real and it changed my life. And um, previous to that, I was just this guy living in his car. Hmm. And that's truth. Thank you. You know, I think that's a great, uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to top that. Thanks <laughs> from the bottom of my heart, from our heart for giving us the day and the time. And um, so appreciate you. And thanks for hanging out extra. I think we went an extra hour, but uh, so appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for everyone. You know, at the end there, we heard a question from Josh Stedman, a former Imagineer and now one of your art directors there at Storyland. 
you know, you could hear the emotion in Josh's voice when he talked about Doris and her influence on him and his peers. Then, you know, it was crazy. After the interview was over, there was such a crowd of designers and architects lining up to meet Doris. And honestly, we couldn't thank her enough. They they just really wanted to connect with her for her work and her influence. Um, what a powerful testimony of a life well lived, don't you think? Well, and she's still living, so we're, we're excited yes, to teach her collaborations <laughs> as well. It sounds like so eulogy-ish. But <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah. It was a life well lived. A life that continues to be lived well. How about that? Absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, I think uh, they're just special people you, you come across in this journey we call life. Mm-hmm. And um, and Doris is definitely one of those. And again, I it's the, the kind of people that you just are not going to have any idea of the the ripple effects, uh, the number of lives and, and uh, people they've inspired and, and touched. Um, and so I know that's the case globally, um, especially just within uh, Imagineering uh, current uh, and and uh, former Imagineers that she still you know maintains some deep relationships and and keeps them in community with each other uh, particularly you know through COVID quarantine and all this kind of stuff. Amazing, it's true. Well, Mel, we gotta cut it short. The episode is over, and as long as there's still water in this river, we gotta keep rolling with it. For now, let's head back to the dock. What do you say? Sounds like a plan, Freddie. Until next time. Thanks, Mel. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. We want you to know that we don't take your listening for granted. We love to make this show and we love that you love it too. Would you mind helping us out by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts? That helps others find the show and it makes us feel good. We want to thank our guest, Doris Hardoon. You can connect with her and follow images and stories from her life on Instagram at 52dragons. That's at 52 underscore dragons. Get access to more stories and interviews at themedattraction.com. Start your own profile, discuss the latest advancements, and interact with your fellow theme park designers around the world. Follow the action on Instagram and Twitter at themedattraction and join our active discussion group on LinkedIn. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at skipperfreddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson, other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Barry is the author of Imagineering an American Dreamscape, the genesis, evolution, and redemption of the regional theme park. This book tells the epic stories of regional theme parks and the strong-willed visionaries behind them. Some of the stories you may have heard, most you probably haven't, and it's a fascinating tale to tell. It's available to purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or direct from the publisher at rivershorecreative.com. You know, Mel... Barry has been working on his jungle skipper spiel, but he's been having trouble identifying the African animals. Yesterday, he told me the ones with long necks are called giraffes and the ones with the stripes are called zebras. But when he saw the gray, long-haired, cow-looking things with curled black horns, he said, I've never seen them before. They must be new. Gnu? Huh. Thanks for listening, folks.